0: Greetings to each one in Jesus' name. It's good to be here this morning. Um, I was studying the life of Jonah a little bit this past week, and why why would anyone run from what God told them to do? And yet, there are times I stand before you trembling, and these are people that somewhat like me. Imagine going to a whole group of people that don't think much of you, and then preaching damnation and destruction. (laughs) doesn't sound like a fun task at hand, so um, maybe I was too hard on Jonah, but the subject is not Jonah. As people, we ask a lot of questions. We have a lot of questions. It's possible that sometimes we have more questions than answers, and I thought, well, what makes a question important? Uh, what makes a question worth asking? And are there questions that are more important than others? And I think what's more important than the question itself is, where do we find the answer? Okay, so we have questions, but where do you go for your answers? Wikipedia? Google? uh, I don't know. Where do you go? Well, some of the questions I was thinking of is, how far away is the earth from the sun? Is that an important question? And, you know, someone says, To some people, that might be a real important question. To me, I I don't rack that up there as a very important question. I know two things. I know that the, the earth is a long ways from the sun. I know that. And I know that I don't want it any closer, and I don't want it any further away. So I'm happy with where it is. So to me, I don't need to know how many miles. And the people that tell us how many miles the sun is away from the earth are the same people that said, that man came from apes and these things, so I I don't believe them in that regard. Am I going to believe that the earth is a certain million miles away from the sun? Well, maybe they figured it out precisely, and if the sun moves, God's in control of all that. So, to me, that question's not overly important. The other question I thought of, what should I do to make money? Is that an important question? And that has a short answer and a long Answer. The short answer is get a paying job. That that's the short answer. That's how most people go about making money. Now there is other methods. You can steal. You can cheat people. You can bum off the government. Whatever it is. There's different methods of getting money. But um, that's that to me is a more important question. What are my plans? What should I do tomorrow? Is that an important question? What should I do tomorrow? What should I be doing today? My children are famous for asking questions about things they already know. Do your children do that? And and sometimes you say, you know, it seems like the more exciting the event, the more they'll ask questions. So you tell your child, well, tomorrow, we're gonna go fishing. And so tomorrow rolls around, and the first thing they ask when they get up, are we going fishing? we are like, yes, we're going fishing. And then a little bit later, are are we going fishing today, Daddy? Yes, we're going fishing. And and they already know the answer, but they're excited about it. And, And the Bible says, unless we become as little children, we will not see the kingdom of heaven. Now, when I think of something to get excited about, I think about our eternal reward. Or our home in heaven. Or where will we spend eternity? So... Except ye be converted and become as a little child, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as a little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So you tell your child, the Lord is coming. Is he coming today? Well, maybe. He could be. It's a possibility, right? And the child's excited, you know. Well, I hope he does come today. Well, what about us as adults? Well, some adults have a little more apprehension. Some might say, Well, I hope he doesn't come today. But a little child, they're excited. I want the Lord to come, you know, and and they're looking forward to his return. The Bible is full of answers to our questions. And a lot like my children, I think sometimes I question what I already know. Is that possible? Is it possible that we know the answer, but we ask questions anyway? And some of that's learning, and some of that is um, not proper. If I were to ask you, what should you do to inherit eternal life? There would be a range of answers to that, correct? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, I'm guessing the answers would range from, you must be born again. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. To repent and be baptized. So these are all things, what must I do to be saved, right? Matter of fact, when John the Baptist came, he came preaching baptism and repentance for the remission of sins. And when Jesus left, what did he command his disciples to preach? Baptism and repentance for the remission of sins, but it was through Jesus' shed blood Along with the Holy Spirit working in the lives of the believers. Is that where everything stops, though? If you've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, is that where everything stopped? I think that's where everything begins, right? That's where true life begins, that's where a resurrected life begins. I believe in Jesus, I've confessed my sins, and now I'm on my way to heaven. Sounds like a good song, doesn't it? There's probably children's songs that are pretty close to that. I was talking to an individual that happens to be here about the second death. Um, Can we die twice? Is it possible to die twice? Revelations 26 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. That's being born again. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The more I considered my answer that we could die twice, I thought, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we can die more than twice. Is that possible? Well, not in this regard, but there is an aspect of dying daily to the flesh, to, to put the old man to death on a regular basis. And if we don't do that, I don't think we'll see the kingdom of God. What must I do to be part of the kingdom of heaven? What must I do to stay part of the kingdom of heaven? To me, those are two of the most important questions a person could ask. Am I on the road to heaven? Am I on the right path? There are some people that thought that Jesus came and he didn't do what he was going to do. The disciples thought he was going to establish a kingdom, an earthly kingdom, and they were waiting for that kingdom to be established. And and yet no earthly kingdom came out of it. Did Christ establish a kingdom when he was on earth? He established a kingdom. It was a heavenly kingdom. Turn with me to Luke 14. What does it look like to be an earthly resident of a heavenly kingdom? Where do our loyalties lie? Luke 14, starting at verse 15. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, uh, there was a person listening to Jesus, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, Then said Jesus unto him, A certain man made a great supper. And bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of ox. I go to prove them. Pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and showed his lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring hither the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, yet there is room. And the lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of these men that were bidden shall taste of my supper. And they went... And there were great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come unto me, and hate not his father, and his mother, and his wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross, and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest haply after he had laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, All that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the others yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage, and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out, and he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. He that forsaketh not all cannot be my disciple. What does that look like? What does that look like in a practical way in our lives? And I think it looks different for each one of us. Are there things that we're holding on to that are dear to us? God has invited us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. God has invited us to be partakers of that kingdom. And is there any chance that we say, no thank you, by our actions? Are we making excuses today? God said, I want you to come, and we said, we're not ready. There's something I'm not willing to give up. There's something that I want to hang on to. There's something that's more precious to me than that supper, and I'll come when I'm ready. The above passage that we read says, They all, with one consent, began to make excuses. And probably every one of us would say, Well, I'm not making any excuses. I've been invited, I've accepted the call, and I'm planning on going. But do our actions reflect what we're saying? For us to understand this story, I feel it's important for us to get a little better perspective of their culture. So they had these big feasts. And they, had, uh, they would bid lots of people to come over. And these feasts often happen at nighttime. And so uh, they had lots of lights. They burnt torches. They brought their lamps. They, inside the feast was a well-lit area. It's a reason the ten virgins, the parable of the ten virgins, it's a reason they brought lamps. Because they were ready for it to be dark and they wanted to bring their own light. So if we're gonna come to the banquet, we must have light within ourselves. That light is Christ, and I talked about that earlier. So this was a well-lit occasion, often held at night. Doesn't that tell you one thing about these people that were making excuses? If you were to go look at a piece of property, when would you go look at it? Most people don't say, well, I'm gonna go look at a property, Dave. Can you come show me at midnight so we can look it over real good? No, they, they said, "I want to see it while it's still daylight." That's often what they say. I, I want to look at the house so I can see the imperfections." And so we know it was excuse. The Bible clearly points out that they made an excuse, but it's even more plain, this feast was going to be held in the evening, but they made excuse saying, "Well, I bought a piece of property. I can't come." Also, at, at these feasts, these banquets, a lot of people were bidden. It was normally dark outside. And when the master of the house chose to close the door, the door was then shut. And there wasn't often a lot of uh, different doors leading into these feasts. They had uh, what in the Bible times calls a porter. And this was a person that was watching the gate to see if the guests had been invited. And, And so they had a narrow opening. And that was the, that's the opening that led into these feasts. And the porter, I think in American terms, the guy would be called a bouncer. And so there was a guy watching the door. And if they didn't have an invitation, if they had not been invited, if they had not met the protocols to come to the feast, they weren't allowed in. And if they had snuck under the curtain somewhere or gotten in some other way, they were unceremoniously kicked out again. Uh, there's a story and a different passage in the Bible. It says that there was a man that came into the wedding feast and he didn't have the wedding garment on. So at the door, the porters often handed out wedding garments. And that's, to us, a type of salvation. Okay, So when we accept Christ as our Savior, when our, our sins are beneath the blood, we've been given the garment of salvation. But then as we go through life, have we kept that garment pure? Are our lives pure before God? Or we say, salvation was nice, but now I'm going to keep doing my own thing. And it's basically saying, well, we're going to go into the feast under our own terms, and we don't need that garment anymore. And, And that person, if you'll remember in the story, that person that was not wearing the garment, he was surrounded by people wearing the garment. And he thought, well, he'll just fit in. But in reality, he stuck out the first person the master of the house saw was the person not wearing the garment. And he said, sir, they were handing them out free at the door. Why don't you have your garment on? And he didn't know what to say, and he got kicked out of the feast. If we understand these things, I I think it helps us better understand what Jesus was trying to tell us about his kingdom. We're living in a day of grace. We're living... In the daytime, a time when God is inviting people, people to be partakers of his feast. But there is coming a day that the door will be shut. And no amount of knocking, no amount of begging to come in will do any good when the door is finally shut. Is there people in our midst here that are sitting here? And they're saying, God is asking me to give something up, but it's too great. Am I standing here before you and God is asking me to give something up? And I'm not willing to. If we're not willing to forsake all, we cannot be his disciples. God is constantly in the refining process. And he often doesn't say, I want you to work on 30 things tomorrow. He often says, he often taps you and says, Here's one little area of your life, and I would like you to work on it. And the, the quicker we're over fighting that, and we just accept God's refining in our lives, the sooner we can move on to perfection. But don't be fooled, because He'll tap you in one area of your life, and you'll, and you'll refine that area, and then He'll work on refining you further in another area. And we won't be finally complete until we're with Him in glory. If you'll note the first two excuses that these people uh, were talking about, they were their possessions. So the one was a piece of land, the other one they had bought five yoke of oxen and they wanted to prove them. I've met many Christians who are fine with God burning up their treasures when he returns. Have you heard that? So it was possible if you were just invited to a feast. Now we understand the feast to be the end of all times, right? So we think, well, the end's coming. I need to get my work done. Is is that our attitude? Is that what we say? So the end is coming. God's going to return soon. I need to get my work accomplished. Is it possible we have that a little mixed up? Um, Now, I'm not advocating not working, but the Lord's work must come first. God's work, His kingdom work must come first, and everything else must be subservient. Is there anything wrong with owning a piece of land? I sure hope not, but there isn't. But when it becomes, and it takes my priorities, and it, takes, and it becomes my focus, and I cannot do kingdom work, and actually it, it takes more of my time than kingdom work, then... I wonder if we've begun to make excuses and we didn't even realize it. There's a lot of kingdom work to be done. The third excuse had to do with our relationships, okay? He said, I had married a wife, therefore I cannot come. That doesn't seem like a great excuse. You got invited to a feast and you just got married? Make it a date, right? Uh, I was like, Well, that's not a good excuse. You know, bring your wife along. Um, It wasn't like, it was clearly an excuse. But what about our relationships? What about the people that we surround ourselves with? Are they hindering our walk with the Lord? Are they drawing us closer to the Lord? I think this is an important thing to, to ask. Who do you surround yourself by? Let's turn to John 7. The first, well, before I get to that, I thought we have relationships, and sometimes these relationships are too good. Okay? So we start relying on earthly relationships because things are going so well. And, and we rely on that relationship and we don't even realize how much we're relying on that relationship until things start to go poorly, until things start to go wrong. And then I think Wes brought this up in Sunday school. Who do we question when that relationship falls apart? Is it the relationship or do we question God? Oftentimes when our relationships start to go south and we've been relying on uh, earthly relationship, we, we suddenly question God. We say, well, God, why did you do that to me? But it could have been, <laughs> it, God may have allowed it, probably did allow it, but it's an earthly relationship and we see how much uh, faith or trust or stock we've put in man. And, and to the point, sometimes we put overconfidence in man. We put confidence in the ability of United States of America to protect us or something like that and um, we have begin to doubt our trust in God. Do the people you surround yourself with tend to make you question God rather than worship him or to doubt God rather than trust him? If, if those are the people you surround yourself with you need to get new company. Okay let's read in John now. John 7 starting at verse 45. Then came officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto him, Why have you not brought him? They said, Why didn't you bring Jesus in here? And the officer said, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? But his people, but this people who know not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night because being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know that he and know what he doeth? Then answered and said unto they answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. So here we have Nicodemus, he's standing up for Jesus, and they said, Are you also from Galilee? Do you also believe in him? And I think he secretly did because he had snuck out and went to Jesus by night. But if we're not willing to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus, is he going to accept us when he returns? You know, I think we have to be bold for Jesus. Uh, I fault Jonah for being a coward. But how often am I cowardly when I'm proclaiming the name of Jesus? Way too often. And I I don't think Jesus wanted us to be bold. If Nicodemus had said, yeah, I'm one of his disciples, what would have happened? He would have got kicked out of the group he was in. He would have been uh, persecuted. He would have lost his position. He was a ruler and a teacher of the Jews, and he liked where he was at. But I don't, I'm not saying, I think he was a believer, because didn't he help with Jesus' body then uh, and bury him? So I, I think... He he knew who who Jesus was. Later on, the Pharisees mocked a blind man for being the disciple of Jesus. Said, who was it that healed you? And he told them repeatedly. And then they said, well, are you one of his disciples? Being a citizen of a heavenly kingdom has potential to bring conflict in our relationships. Do you believe that? Matthew 10, 16. Behold... I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Doesn't sound like a good good thing. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in the synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, and for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in the same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall be delivered up, shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child. And the child shall rise against the parents, and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth till the end shall be saved. But, they, but when they persecute you in this city, flee ye unto another. For verily I say unto you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Then the, the disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. There are many countries where naming the name of Christ is a death sentence. And it's not just amongst the people that don't like you, it's amongst your own family. In Muslim cultures, if you convert to Christianity in some of the, the conservative Muslim world, they will kill you. Uh, It would be better if their daughter was dead than being a Christian, okay? We take being a Christian rather lightly. But brother against brother, father against child, it mentions it here. These are things that will happen when Jesus has taken root in one's life and not another. These things cause conflict. There's relationship differences. To be part of the kingdom, we must give our lives a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. What about relationships that should not be, or improper? There's uh, relationships such as um, in, in, intimacy outside of marriage. It's called fornication. Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears." You know, these, a little bit of pleasure, a little bit of satisfaction, and how many people have given up their eternal reward for that little taste of the forbidden? How about an emotional or intimate relationship with someone of the opposite sex while you're married? Is that improper relationships? That will drag you away from God. It will, it will take you away from what he's planned. Churches here in America, divorce is widely accepted, and um, they said it's fine. But that was not God's plan for man and woman. Matthew 5, 31, And it hath been said, whoso shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorce. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, save for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Then if you'll turn with me to Mark 10, because the Pharisees wanted to know a little bit more about this. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 1. And he arose from thence, and cometh into the coast of Judea, by the farther side of Jordan, and the people resorted unto him again. And as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again after this manner. And he said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another, committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. I think many a young man or young lady has been done a great disservice by those that call themselves pastors who tell them, your first relationship didn't go good, have another relationship, get into another marriage. That is not what the Bible teaches. And um, there are many hurting souls out there, many hurting children in these broken homes. The Bible is the foundation and when it refers to Jesus being the bride or the bridegroom and us being the bride, um, our homes are to be a type of Christ. And when we mar that, it, it, you look at society around us and all the broken relationships and the broken homes, and the home is being attacked more and more all the time. And, and we need to stand guard against these things that are being taught. Is it more important that man approves of our actions Or that God approves of our actions. And I'll say it's much more important that God approves of my actions. If I tell you that you can do something. I don't think it's going to stand very well before God when you say. Well Dave told me I could. And maybe if I tell you something wrong. The blood's going to be upon my head as well. If If I'm teaching things that are not scriptural. If I'm teaching things that are false. I will be guilty when I stand before God. But. If I tell you something wrong and then you believe it, I'm not sure that works so well. You need to study the scriptures yourself. If God is prompting you to do something and someone else isn't tapping you on the shoulder and telling you to do it, follow God's prompting. Listen to what He's saying. Let's look at the story of the 10 virgins in Matthew 25. Uh, we talked about accountability software on Wednesday. And for some reason, I got a report come to my computer about my computer. And it said that um, my accountability partner should check into my, what I've been looking at. And it said on CD-ROM, David looked up 10 virgins. And <laughs> so it, it flagged that as uh, being suspect. And I guess in the world... Uh, it could be, but I, I couldn't remember where it was found, and so I was looking it up on my Bible app. Uh, yeah, it wasn't even on the internet, so I found that kind of interesting. I'll have a conversation with Claire when he gets back. <laughs> Let's start Matthew 25, verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be like unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. And they that were foolish took their lamps, and took no oil with them. But the wise took the oil in their vessels with their lamps. And while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose, and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered and saying, Not so, lest there not be enough for us and you But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. And afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Okay? I don't plan to get too deep into this parable this morning, but there are similarities between the wise virgins and the foolish virgins. So what are the similarities? They were all virgins, so they were pure. They had all kept themselves pure. They all had lamps. And when they arrived, all their lamps were burning, right? Or at least they they had a little bit of oil. I don't think the foolish would have showed up to this thing with no oil and their lamps unlit. I think back in that culture, uh, it wasn't as easy as striking a match to make fire happen. Now, maybe they had it worked out a little better, but I think in that culture, they liked to keep fire going somewhere because it was a lot easier to keep it going once it had got started. So they did not want their lamps to go out. It also says, and they all slumbered and slept. Now, is that a positive thing? I don't think that was a positive thing. Um, Even for the wise, they they became complacent eventually. Because it's like, when's the bridegroom coming? Do you know when Jesus is coming? Have you become lax? And when you wake up in the morning, do you say, is he coming today? Well, he didn't come last week. And so for a while we say, well, maybe he's coming today. And then we forget about it. We get involved in our lives again. And I think that's a type of slumbering and sleeping. When we, when we lose our awareness that today could be the day, it's a, it's a form of falling asleep or becoming complacent. The five foolish virgins were a lot like the man that got to the feast without the garment. You will not enter into heaven under another person's merit. You must bring your own oil. You must be filled with the Spirit. You must be current with the Lord. If we anticipate Jesus' return from day to day, wouldn't this help us establish our actions? If you thought Jesus was coming today, would anything change? And if if you can pick out a number of things that would change if Jesus would come today, I encourage you to start working on them. Okay, If you know that there's things that I need to work on before the Lord returns, then start working on them. Because I think if we're active in the work of the Lord, if we're actively listening to the Holy Spirit, then we'll be ready to meet him when he returns. I firmly believe that. There may, our lives won't be perfect, but we'll be on our way to perfection. And that's what he desires. I said it before, but I'll reiterate. Today is the day of grace. Today is the day to prepare to meet the Lord. The answer of what must I do to inherit eternal life is an individual question. Um, There's things that you need to do to inherit eternal life. It's whatever God's prompting you to do. Whatever His Spirit is prompting you to do. If you've accepted the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, and then He continues to mold you and make you into his own. But can we hear God's voice? We live in an age where there's so many voices. Are we able to discern what's God's voice? Do we know the shepherd? It says, my sheep know my voice and they hear my call, and a stranger they don't listen to. But do we ever listen to strangers? Or do we know our master's voice? Do we know what he sounds like? And the way we know how Jesus sounds is in his word. He's given us his word, and it's da- a daily walk with Jesus. Matthew thirteen forty four, just a couple short verses here, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth the field. We need to be willing to give up all that we have to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he hath found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world that the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus saith unto them, Have ye understood all these things? And they said unto him, Yea, Lord. And I will note that last story about the fish. God is calling all people to him. It doesn't matter your background or where you're from, or even your past. He wants all people. Um, In another passage, he told... The Pharisees, I believe, he said, there's harlots and sinners that are going to enter into the kingdom of God before the children. Why was that? Because they believed and they were serving him wholeheartedly. They hadn't drifted away. They accepted his saving grace and they accepted him through faith. It was said right after the centurion said, you know, I have servants and I can send them. They'll go do this and that. And Jesus said, I haven't found so great a faith in Israel. Read right after that. Find that in your Bible and read right after that. Jesus is calling all men to repentance and to be saved. The kingdom of heaven will be worth it all. Any sacrifice we have to make, any hardship we must endure, will pale in comparison to the inheritance that awaits those who are faithful. Just a song in closing that I would like to read. God's way is best. If human wisdom a fairer way may seem to show, tis only that our earth dim vision the truth can never clearly know. Had I the choosing of my pathway, in blindness I should go astray, and wander far away in darkness, nor reach the land of endless day. He leadeth true, I will not question, though through the valley I should go, and though I pass through clouds of trial, and drink the cup of human woe. God's way is best, heart cease thy struggling to see and know and understand. Forsake thy fears and doubts, but trusting, submit thyself into his hand. Thy way is best, so lead me onward. My all I give to thy control. Thy loving hand will truly guide me and safe to glory bring my soul. God's way is best, I will not murmur, although the end I may not see. Where'er he leads, I'll meekly follow. God's way is best, is best for me. Can we sing that song honestly this morning? If we can, we're on our way to heaven. Let's have a song.